Welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show that explores the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and what the heck we can do to overcome it. And today, I am as thrilled and flattered as I can be to have as my guest the best-selling author, Beth Macy. Beth and I have been getting to know each other over the last couple of months or so, and many, many, many listeners to this radio show and podcast will know that Beth is the author of several best-selling books, including Factory Man, Dope Sick, and most recently, Lazarus Rising. Raising Lazarus, actually. Well, <laughs> you were close. <laughs> oh, great. What a great way to start. Sorry about that, Beth. So uh, my faux pas aside, um, I'm just delighted to have you here with me today at the WEHC studio in Emory. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So we're going to start, as we do with almost all of our guests, with just a short bit about your background, where you were raised, how you were raised, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I was born in a small town in rural Ohio, surrounded by cornfields, about an hour west of Columbus, called Urbana, Ohio. There was nothing urban about it, Mm -hmm. but it was really a great place to grow up. I had great teachers, and um, I had kind of a rough family life, and was the first in my family to go to college. And I majored in journalism, and I was one of those kids that I graduated on Saturday, moved on Sunday, and I started work on Monday. Like, I had wow. no cushion at all. Wow, wow. And where'd you go to college? Bowling Green State University. I was a full financial aid Pell Grant student. It paid the full freight. They even bought my books. Wow. Can you imagine that now? No, it would only pay about a quarter yeah. now of Pell Grant, yeah. which is sad because current me's wouldn't be able to have the this great experience that I think really saved my life. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah. And they or they would have the experience and come out with massive debt. Right. Right. So then you went into journalism. Tell us a little bit about your career in journalism. Yeah, I was um a newspaper reporter for almost thirty years. Most of that at the Roanoke Times. I'd worked at a couple other papers before, but um at the Roanoke Times I wrote feature articles and then about five, ten years in I started writing kind of in depth series that were largely about marginalized people in the city. Really, all the books that I've written have initially grown out of the seeds of reporting I did for the Roanoke Times. They were really good to me. They let me dig in. And uh, Factory Man, for instance, started out of, we had lost all these factories in Southside and Martinsville, Virginia. Furniture factories, for the most part. Yeah, first textiles after NAFTA and then furniture. And I was away on this fellowship at Harvard. And when I came back, the very last furniture factory had just closed. And my editor said, this is a huge story. This is not just a local story. It's global. And we're all implicated in it. You know, and I hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that I was like writing my book proposal on a chair I had bought made in China that my neighbor had sold me at a family discount, you know, Mm -hmm. who ran a furniture store. And she was right. And she was so good that when I first came back from my first interview with John Bassett III, who, you know, sued China in a court of international trade to keep his factory going, I told her how, like, great the interview was. And she said, this is big. This is a story you can chase all the way to China, to Vietnam, to Indonesia, uh, to Washington, where this huge legal case had gone. And you can tell America about the history of industrialization and then 
globalization. So what an opportunity that was. How many years was Factory Man in the making? Really, I just had about a year and a half to work on it. I had already um, written this big kind of five pages in the Roanoke Times. It was a big story. And um, I thought I knew a lot enough. I certainly knew enough to write a book proposal. And then I realized as I started reporting on it, once I sold the proposal, that it was way more complicated than I thought. Right. And um, that book, which I think is probably a little lesser known than Dope Sick, would be my I, I think you're right. But, but it is so worth the read because it gives so much insight into this. And it and it goes deeper than – or let's say that it is strong on analysis, but it does that through a storytelling frame, basically the, the story of John Bassett and his family, the generations before, the generations coming up. And so for folks who are maybe a little less intrigued by U.S. trade policy, it's a great book to really get informed on the consequences of our trade decisions, while at the same time just being drawn into a terrific story. Yeah, it's a real family feud story. My friend Anna Quinlan said, it's the dishiest book about globalization I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) But her point was, it's a fun read. Yeah, absolutely. um, I what a great like I had never written an article before where I thought this guy could be a book, you know, and of course it was and it and it wasn't all kittens and roses. He was a really kind of flawed, mean at times, just total a hole kind of person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the first a quote. A lot of arrogance is what a I lot of arrogance, well. a lot of mi- wealth and entitlement. Yes, absolutely, but mixed with this pretty strong dedication to his workers is what I also To the people who made his family rich. And how unusual is that in this time? And when people are discarded left and right. Yeah. Yeah. And he took a lot of guff for it from his industry, from his family. And you got to give him credit. Yeah, absolutely. So then your next major work was Dope Sick. And uh, you just gave a talk about it last night. You were talking about it in Abingdon a few weeks back. So I think folks are pretty familiar with it. But maybe tell us how you were drawn into that story that led to the book. Yeah, Dope Sick was actually um, an assignment initially from my editor, the same great editor at the Roanoke Times, who we had had some news articles about these two private school kids in the wealthiest suburb in Roanoke called Hidden Valley, and which was aptly named because this problem of huge magnitude was happening in Hidden Valley, and it was because of the stigma around opioid use disorder. It was very much remaining hidden, and then suddenly this well-known civic leader's kid gets arrested for selling heroin to another former private school classmate who dies. And Spencer, mom power, ends up going to federal prison for five and a half years. And so I followed this story for like a summer. And I wrote about how these two families' lives were upended by this growing epidemic. And we didn't really call it an epidemic then. What's the time frame again? Well, this was 2012. 2012. The kid died in 2010, and the trial wasn't until 2012. And I spent the summer as he was getting ready to go to prison following these families and what had happened, kind of to put the community on alert that this is this is in our community, and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And But Spencer and this other kid, they were just the tip of the iceberg because the cop that got Spencer's phone had text messages they were using and dealing with 50 other kids from that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I knew it wasn't something that just went away because it's so hard to recover from. And so when I actually proposed this to be my second book, and my gatekeepers in New York didn't get it. My agent and editor both said, uh, we don't think there's a heroin thing. Like, New York had heroin in the 90s, like it was a trend or something that Roanoke was just late getting. And alas, they were wrong. And Spencer, 
who taught me the word dope sick was right. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going away. Mm-hmm. It's still not going away. Yeah. So you write uh, at least your books. I know last night at your talk you you mentioned that occasionally when you were primarily a, a journalist for the paper before you were writing books, it was nice to be able to write a very heavy story and then be able to write a lighter story to kind of recover emotionally. But all of your books, it seems to me, are uh, driven by a desire to make the world a better place by enlightening people about something that they may not know about. So you're you seem to kind of be hell-bent on really getting to the bottom of stories that impact people, especially people who are kind of on the margin. Why is that? Yeah, so I grew up poor. My dad was largely unemployed and kind of a dysfunctional alcoholic. I thought of him as the town drunk. I'm sure there are other town drunks. But, you know, it was a very kind of, I had a lot of shame around it. We lived in a really crappy house. I used to have my... Uh, friends' parents dropped me off a block away so they mm. wouldn't see my house. Even though it was a small town and everybody knew where I lived, mm. right? right. Uh, I still get a little gut check when I'm driving by the house with my husband even, my mm-hmm. husband of 32 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're going to see my house kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So poverty has always very much like been in my heart. And um, so I've always gravitated to stories of outsiders and underdogs because I was one. And... In every position or every job I've ever had, I've typically been the only first-generation college grad. And so I think I bring a different lens to a story. So when I set out to tell the story of John Bassett, I wasn't driven to make him a hero. I was really driven to tell the story of the workers who had been left behind by globalization and then how the government did nothing for them. And not only that, because the regulators got bought off these Purdue Pharma and other opioid companies come into the exact same places where the job went away because they knew people were on Medicaid and hurting and had a lot of workplace injuries. And so those same areas got a double whammy before the rest of the country and with fewer resources to come back. And that just strikes me as awful. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't just thought about it until right now, but in a way, Dope Six kind of a sequel to Factory Man in in that sense. If you throw in coal mining and the decline of coal mining, then you really capture the things that laid the foundation for Big Pharma to blitz the area with painkillers. Yeah, I, I've always seen it that way. And mm. I think Raising Lazarus is kind of part three. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm mostly embedding in places like West Virginia and Mount Airy, North Carolina. And those are places where the jobs went away. Yeah. Huh? So, you, you mentioned I want to get to a little bit about your family because I read a fascinating op-ed you wrote for, was it the Washington Post? New York Times. New York Times, New York Times. One, one of those places that will never take an op-ed from me. But <laughs> <laughs> we got to get you in there, Anthony. But I want to also hear a little bit about your experience of being a first-generation college student and a first-generation student from a poor family in a rural community, then going off to... First, Bowling Green, but but then your fellowship even at Harvard. What was it like? Did you feel like a fish out of water? Did you? Always. Always. Huge imposter syndrome. At college, I will never forget my mom in her car that barely made it the two-hour drive. It was a little Mustang, rusted-out Mustang that she had inherited from my sister and just stuffed to the gills with my belongings and just like a total knot in my stomach. I'm not going to be able to do it. The thing about, I had a grandma next door that taught me how to read when I was four, 
And so when I got to school, I was very prepared. I was probably ahead of most of the kids. And so I, it occurred to me that they're not any smarter than me. They just get to do things like go on vacations and wear really nice clothes and stuff like that. And so I was always a really good student. So I wasn't, when I, on the way to college, I wasn't feeling unprepared. I was feeling just less than in the way that you do when you experience poverty to your core. And, you know, sort of feeling like a food stamp recipient in a line at a Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. But it was a pretty good experience. It was emotionally kind of, it was very fish out of water. And, you know, not too long after college, I think it was 26, I, I married this guy from suburban Indianapolis whose parents met in the Ivy League and had a swimming pool in the backyard. And so I've always kind of been a fish out of water mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in in many ways. But when I realized that the stories that I tell best are stories about people who have had to really work and overcome odds, like that's when I do my best writing. Yeah. And so then when I start focusing on those stories, that's when – you know, that's the work that got me into the fellowship at Harvard. And similarly, I felt a bit of fish out of water, but so did everybody else going to Harvard because okay. it's Harvard. Yeah. And I ended up making some of the best friends in my life there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So you weren't greeted with just like total snootiness and not at all. Elitism. No. The that's one great. thing I noticed about the fellowship, and it was like 23 people, half were from, were international, so mm -hmm. I got to learn a lot about the world through these people who were journalists in it. So let's shift just a, a hair to talk a bit about your family in a little more detail, maybe mm -hmm. maybe however you want to approach it through your mom, <clears throat> the lens of um, the, the New York Times op-ed that was so fantastic. Because I, what I want to get to is you and I are collaborating now because we have a common interest in, in making our places better, more more sound, more prosperous, but also because we recognize that there is this enormous divide and there's a lot of reasons for it, but it's kind of playing out geographically between small town and country folks and city people and all the different things. So start to talk a little bit about what happened in your family as you explained it in the Times op-ed. Well, there's this, um, it had been sort of brewing with Rush Limbaugh. You know, I had a brother-in-law and a sister that were just, well, mostly a brother-in-law, who was just fascinated, took a pretty hard turn right, although I'm coming to realize that they're not as extreme as I thought compared mm -hmm. to people in their community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so I would say, how are you doing in, say, 2014? And he'd go, or 15, he'd go, deplorable, you know, just like to goad me. And then when I wrote Factory Man, he goes, you wrote a pretty Republican book. And I said, I wrote a book about the people that were left behind. It's not blue or red. It's just right. a book about the facts and what happened. But, but just to interrupt there for a minute. So for him, it was a Republican book in the sense that it was empathetic with working people, which he didn't think Democrats or liberals had. Is that right? Is that right? And, he, and he perceived me as being a city person mm -hmm. with uh, an elite, I suppose, mm -hmm. even though he probably had more money than I had at the time. Mm -hmm. And then as Trump got elected, things just became more political. And my other sister and brother had never really talked about politics. And then at one point, my brother unfriended me on Facebook, and I only knew it because he missed this invitation to go to our son's senior high school 
musical play. He was he was Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. He was like one of the lead roles. And I was like, Tim, what's up? I sent you a note on Facebook. And he's like, well, I've, I've unfollowed you because of all the liberal you post. Jeez. And I was like, I, I've post fact-checked articles from the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I mean, I'm pretty careful that I will, uh, I, I don't just post things I, I post like real journalism, and by the way, I write for some of these publications. Are you saying what, what I write is is liberal too? That has no factual basis, because because I'm really going to differ on that. And then um, then my sister, who was always evangelical, started posting about politics for the first time during Trump, and so all this is sort of coming up to a head. My mom didn't. My mom hated Trump. Most people in my family, we didn't get together that often, but we just avoided it because they knew I was the only non-Trumper in the family. Well, me and mom. But mom had dementia by this point. And so literally mom was dying in November of 2020. She was in a memory care unit. Uh, She had had a stroke. She was going to die within the week. We didn't know that exactly. But we were sort of with the hospice nurse on kind of death watch with her, being with her. And that Saturday, when the votes were being tallied in Georgia, the hospice nurse's phone blinks. And she goes, oh, they're calling it forbidden. And I don't know why she said Biden instead of Biden, but she was not happy. And my sister, who never was just a sweet person, like we have very different views about religion in particular. But she and then literally mom is going, <gasps> You know, and you never know if it's going to be your last breath. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> my sister goes, it's fraudulent. You wait. He won't win. And mom is going. <gasps> and, you know, mom died a few days later. And I didn't say anything because I was just like, we, we don't talk about this stuff. Right, right. But and now now of all times. Yeah. Up, right? Yeah. So the funeral happened. My first best friend, somebody I met in kindergarten who's black, and as a lay minister, conducted the funeral, and everybody was really happy with that because my mom loved Joy is her name, and my sister, who's who, who had listened to her Christian radio station for years, was happy too. I I I don't feel like people in my family are quote racist, which you hear a lot about mm-hmm. rural people that right. they're racist. My first two friends were Korean and black. I met them both in kindergarten, and we're we're going on a girls' trip this weekend. We're still very close, and um. So I just, that moment just kept with me. Like, have I lost with the death of my mom? And my siblings and I don't have that much in common, uh, but we love each other. And now we have this political thing that's getting even bigger. Like, is this the end of my family? Mm. Like, will I even go home again kind of thing? And so I wrote this piece, and it ran right before Christmas, and <clears throat> there were just tons of comments of people experiencing the exact same thing, and and much worse. Like, I can't – I have one friend who doesn't see his brother because his brother won't fly to see him because he can't carry his gun on the plane. Uh, I mean, so many people who just don't talk to their families at all. And so I decided to turn that essay into a, a memoir, partial memoir, but it also would be heavily reported about – what it's like to grow up in rural America now. And I'm positing that, like the thing I said before about the Pell Grant, that that we're much less upwardly mobile and that I'm trying right now to settle on kind of a young Beth Macy to follow, a person like me who is maybe marginalized but has, you know, good academics 
and see what kind of barriers they face today. So I'm just really starting to bed, embed into my hometown. And I see the book as kind of a conversation between the past and the present. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell my own story. And then I will, I'll see my family more. Mm-hmm. And I'm already noticing, I've seen them twice in this year, which is unusual. One thing that struck me was I've been able to detach a little because I'm seeing it as something I'm writing about. Mm. And I've been able to approach them with less judgment and more love, which is kind of bad on me, right? (laughs) Well, you mean that you weren't doing that earlier, but my goodness. And that was such a big part of what you talked about last night, the suspending judgment and putting love forward in terms of how how we respond to, interact with people with Uh, drug addiction problems, same sort of thing that you said, and how that opens the door to the possibility for change on both sides, that suspending judgment. You're right. You're right. Yeah, and I realized, like, I can approach any person, a homeless person, any person with non-judgment and love, and I should treat my family with the same respect. Right, right. But it's profoundly disappointing when you're the people you grew up with, certainly your family, but also your close, you know, friends from early on, take a radically different route in their ideology or morality yeah. or whatever. That's, that's not easy, so don't don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> now, the other element of this that um, my understanding you're going to be exploring is where the demise of local media plays in. Yeah. And you've alluded to that in, in some of the stuff you've written so far. Can you say just a, a little bit about what you're kind of positing there? Sure. Um, So we now have um, a situation where two newspapers close every week. And I think we've lost, I I can't remember the exact number, but it's it's roughly half of all newspapers or all journalists have lost their jobs. Might be more than that. And so one of the things, I mean, I talked about this as early as Factory Man, is nobody wrote about the people left behind. Nobody it's not the job of the Martinsville Bulletin reporter to report on what's happening at the um, the WTO level or what's happening in Washington with the TAA program. And then like even regional newspapers like the Roanoke Times wasn't really even covering what was happening in the hinterlands because our bureaus were closing. It was kind of unusual that an editor let me go down there and spend three or four months just on that initial story that led to Factory Man. So we missed it. We missed that story entirely. Well, even the Great Recession, the Pew Center did a survey of how the media covered the recession, and it was told from the perspective of CEOs and businesses. It wasn't told from the perspective of all those people who lost their homes and their jobs. I mean, only 2% of the stories uh, were from the per- wow. perspective of the workers. And it's because most of the people manufacturing our news lives in the city. Barbara Kingsolver talks about that really beautifully. And um, and they don't drive through Martinsville and Galax and Eden, North Carolina. They just don't. And so they've missed it. And so I, I, I feel like I've been able to write all the books because the national <laughs> press has missed it. You filled that gap. Yeah. So, but wouldn't you say that the national press has had that bias towards the CEOs, the elites to some degree for a good long time and that that the missing piece is that local print journalism gave something of another story that yeah. they're not able to give now. Is that is that it? Yeah, because the, I mean, I was being interviewed by somebody at the Bristol paper yesterday and they have two reporters. Mm. Roanoke has about eight. I mean, it had 
1980 when I came in 1989. So think about, we don't even, Dwayne Yancey, who runs Cardinal News, said we don't even know what we're missing because we're not out there looking mm -hmm. for it. And mm -hmm. and I think the nonprofit model, and I'm a, I should say I'm a, on the advisory board of that, is really going to be the way forward because mm -hmm. they they exist on donations and foundations and stuff uh, because of the you know the di that digital marketing has taken over their the ads of papers i mean i just interviewed a guy out in carroll iowa fourth generation newspaper publisher who had to close his paper and it was over 100 years old mm. and he had gone to facebook for a grant you know, because Facebook and Google's the reason that a lot of these papers are folding because all the ads have gone digital. And he was trying to get a grant and they didn't want to give him one. And he got in this executive's face and said, you, you come talk to me when they come and get you in their driveway and they stab you. And he was just saying that the divide is increasing and right. you're a big part of it right. because people are going into these conspiracy rabbit holes. They hate the government. And part of the, the reason that is is because legacy media, stories that are fact-checked, don't exist to the level that they once did. Yeah. And, uh, and that is really hurting democracy. So we're about at time. I, I want to ask, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you to um, say what, what you feel, if you do, uh, hopeful about going forward. I know you're you're embarking on this new exploration, a new investigation, and many of us can't wait for the product of that. But in the meantime, what has given you a little bit of hope that maybe, maybe we can just begin to overcome this divide and restore some degree of a sense of common fate and common purpose as Americans? Yeah, I was interviewing a community organizer out of Eastern Kentucky last week named Beth Howard. I don't know if you know that name, but I, I, I think yeah. I introduced you to her afterwards. Mm -hmm. You you two were very simpatico. And she was telling me about how her group, which is called Surge, which is Stand Up for Racial Justice, was doing work um, with the Kentucky Amendment to protect abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And and so one of the things they did is they targeted counties that maybe had a chance of turning purple or a little bit pink, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and they just knocked on doors and they went door to door. And I hope to go out to really see how this works. But they were having conversations with people, many of them who didn't vote. And they just approached it from a real personal perspective. I said, would how did you get in their house? She said, I just started asking him questions at the doorway. I didn't ask if I could come in and talk to him. And she kind of found what I thought she would find, that there's a lot of distress out there and people are really lonely and lacking legacy media. They go down these conspiracy rabbit holes, but they want to be more connected to their community. And so she, they, they were able to find common ground to have these conversations. And particularly when they sent out women who, organizers who had had abortions to tell their personal stories, they could come around to the fact that, oh, uh, a woman's health care should be her personal right. And, you know, they were able to win that election. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying it was just their work, but they were out there with boots on the ground, really making connections with people. And I'm hoping as you and I go forward in the next months, I want to do some of your Ruby training and learn kind of what your approach is too. And then I also want to go out with Beth and, and see how she does it. And then meantime, I'll be going back to my hometown trying to find this young me and following that person and as well as how the community itself is doing. Yeah, and, and that approach that you described that Beth Howard and Serge is taking is 
uh, not identical to, but real similar to what George Gale, who started People's Action, uh, did there, which is that you that you don't go to the door with the platform. You don't go to the door with a moral framework that you're teaching people. You go to the door primarily with questions and openness. Yes. And um, it's a way slower and more unpredictable process. Most political consultants and even organizers hate it because they want numbers. They want maximum number of contacts. But it seems to be about the only thing that actually works, that gets us beyond our two our two camps, our two teams. So Right. And I'm yeah. thinking back to my nurse practitioner, Tim, in the parking lot, yeah. meeting people where they are. Right. right. This is a concept of harm reduction as it relates to substance use disorder. But you could also apply harm reduction to the rural-urban divide, yeah. meet folks where they are. Yeah. We have to start talking to one another. Yeah. And, I, and I noticed just like in my last visit home, with we were all – the four of us were all around a table. Two of my nieces were there and we're all playing cards and nobody brought up politics. And we all talked about our various ailments. And we talked about mom and we laughed and we had a special dessert that my sister Cookie makes. And I brought pizza and we just had a great time. And I thought, this is this is the beginning. You know, right. we haven't solved anything, but this is you got to start somewhere. Right. If anybody right. has any ideas or wants me to know something, like just feel free to reach out to me through my website, which is BethMacyWriter.com. Trying to cast my net wide as I always do and listen. Yep, excellent. BethMacyWriter.com. Yes. Thank you. Thank you again. This has been Two Worlds, One Country on WEHC and WISE Wise FM. Undivided. Yeah.